Hello and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week we have guitar professor John Baboyan with us. Pretty much anyone who has ever studied guitar at Berklee already knows John, as he's taught here since 1980. In addition to having toured the world and performed with folks like Gary Burton or Tom Jones, John's guitar playing has also been heard on movies and television shows like The Sopranos. Professor Baboyan has some really great things to say about applying the things you learn at Berkeley, on rolling with the changes that happen in the music industry or life, and being able to find the silver lining in those changes. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with John Baboyan. Hi, I'm John Baboyan from the Guitar Department, and this is Coffee Talk, except for me, it's Tea Talk, because I don't drink coffee. But <laughs> <laughs> that's all right perfect thing i love that <laughs> cheers everybody i'm and kim that, perlack i'm the chair of the guitar department and i don't know if you can see dog. that but that's that's my jazz mug it says jazz on there and the z oh i love that the second z is actually the handle that, that's from new orleans <laughs> the home of that's jazz. incredible <laughs> we're here with john baboyan professor of the guitar department um, John, thanks for showing us your mic or your um, your uh, cup. My mug. My what mug. Am I saying? <laughs> your mug. <laughs> we need to drink more coffee, I think, Kim. I know. I know. Right I think here. we're right. going to have to totally let's sip to get that started. one over. <laughs> yeah, let's have a sip to get started. And so we're here with Cheryl Bailey, assistant chair of the guitar department. Hello, everybody. And Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, folks. Great. So Cheryl, what are you drinking this morning? Well, I'm over at our 921 Boylston office, guitar office, and I shh, I have a little Nespresso hookup in here. So I'm drinking a very, it's not as good as my home roast, but it is okay. A little espresso for my Nespresso. It will cover you until you get back home. That's right. <laughs> John, what's your tea of choice? Uh, peppermint usually, Ooh. and uh, there there's one that I get that's nice. That's an Ocean State Job Lot. It's by Lloyd's. I don't know if it's from London or whatever, but uh, but it's it's very nice. They come in those little tri packs. You know, they look like a triangle, like a pyramid, and uh, yeah. it tastes really good. And I'll usually have one or two a day. Sometimes during students, and, nice. and certainly at night while I'm watching a little bit of late night TV just to kind of like wind down. It's great. It's yeah. great. Um, so the first thing we generally um, ask everybody is if you can think about your first days at Berkeley and you've had a few because you've been a student, you've been a teacher. Mm. And um, are there some things that stand out to you when you think about your first days at Berkeley? You know, it's interesting you would talk about my first days at Berkeley because my first days at Berkeley predate my college days. Back in the day, back in the day, <laughs> there, was an, <laughs> there was an extension program at Berkeley where high school students could come and study 
with either teachers who were teaching part-time or with like junior or senior students in the performance program who were really good and and got the chance to um, uh, to teach in that program. So it, this, this might be a little bit of a long story, but I'm going to tell it to you because I think it's interesting. In 1971, do the math, my friends, this is 50 years ago, my father took me to see Robert Sullivan. Do you know, Kim, you might know Robert Sullivan from New England Conservatory. He was the classical guitar teacher at New England Conservatory for many, many years. I do. Okay. Yes, he, I know that. I was like sure. 14, 14 or 15 years old. And my father took me up to see Robert Sullivan with my Gibson 335. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this, this very Gibson oh, wow. 335. That I, so that was That's a beauty. That is an instrument I've had since 1969. And he took me up to Robert Sullivan, this cl great classical guitar player and educator. And me with my 335, I went up there to play some blues for him because that's what I was doing at the time. And Robert Sullivan was a very nice man, and he listened to me. And after listening to me, he said, yeah, that was very nice, good, good. And he says to my father, you know, I think you really should take him over to Berkeley to see Bill Levitt. And ultimately, wow. that's what we did. So again, we go, same year, 1971, we go, he calls Bill Levitt, Bill invites him up, which is very great, you know, gracious, imagine, you know, 15-year-old student calling you up, Kim, and saying, hey, can I bring my son over, my 15-year-old, to play for you? And, and Bill said, sure. And so after hours, my dad took me up to Bill's office. For, for and, the record, Kim would say sure to you. <laughs> I would. I would also I have, say sure. I, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Um, and so Bill invited us in, and I, I sat there and played my 335 and played some blues for him again, and he enjoyed it because... Uh, I was also reading out of some of his books, and um, he asked me to read some music, and I read it in open position really good, because I was originally a horn player before a guitar player, so I was always a reader to a certain extent. But on guitar, I was still at open position, right? And so I played this in open position for him, and someone had told me about playing a G major scale in the second position with no open strings, so I had learned that specifically to go play for him. And I did that. He says, oh, great, that's good you know that scale fingering. Now let's read something in that position. And I was lost. <laughs> right. So that was my first experience with Bill Levitt. But he was very gracious about it and very wonderful, and he set me up with the extension program, so at 15 years old, I was coming to Berkeley once a week to study with several teachers. One of them was Charlie Chapman, mm -hmm. and one, one of our co colleagues. At that time, he was a senior at Berkeley, and just before he started to teach at the school. Another one was Tom Rotella. Uh, Tom has since gone on to L.A. to become one of the great studio players in L.A. and has done a lot of recordings. And there's a side story that's coming up for that. I got a lot of them, so we'll be talking a lot. <laughs> I got nothing to say, right? And um, so that was my first experience at Berkeley as a 15-year-old student coming to the 1140 building and taking lessons with Tom Rotella and then later Charlie Chapman. Then, 73, I came as a Berkeley student and and uh, did my four years as a music ed major. Wow. Did you, when you chose music ed, did you have a specific intention to teach school or like what was behind that choice 
for Good you? question. Yeah, at the time, there were only three majors at the school. You were either a performance major, a writing major, or an education major. Okay. And all of my previous teachers all said to me, you should get your music ed degree so you got something to fall back on. I wanted to be Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and then later, I wanted to be George Benson. And so that wasn't what I wanted to do. But they all said, get the music ed degree. You'll be happy that you have it later on because you might need it. Um, and so I got into the music ed program. But at the time, I was also able to take as many writing courses as I could and tried to get into as many ensembles as I could. There were many, many less students then, so you could do things like that. So I would just go knock on a door of a, an ensemble that was obviously missing a guitar player, and I'd say, hey, I'm, can I come in and play with you? And I would. And sometimes do that for the whole semester. Oh, and uh, about halfway through, we start junior year, I started getting into my music ed stuff, and I started getting this mindset that I'm going to be Mr. Baboyan, the music teacher in the high school, right? And went through the student teaching and all that stuff, and graduation's coming up, and they gave us all the information about how to try and get a job, and I started filling out a stack of applications about this high for all the surrounding towns where I lived. Because that's what they said what to do. And about halfway through that, I said to myself, wait a minute, this isn't what I wanted to do. And I took that stack of applications and I stuck it on top of a file cabinet in my parents' house. And I believe it still sits in that same place. Um, so I kind of changed my mind a couple of times in the process there. Um, but ultimately, I'm glad I did the music ed major because I learned a lot about how to work with students. So it, it actually turned out to be a good thing. I'm glad I did that major. That's what I was going to ask you. Um, what are the things, if you, if you had some things that you learned by doing that major that you've taken with you into your teaching or even into your playing and practicing? Um. How to work with a large class of students, sometimes very young. I, did, I, I actually enjoyed elementary education. Mm -hmm. Kindergarten kids will do anything for you. They'll jump out the window if you ask them to. Um, and that was wonderful. But it also meant that when you got to the older kids, you had to learn how to interact with them to keep them interested because they could get kind of nasty. Middle school, junior high school, yeah. And so I, I did discover that if I could keep 30 eighth grade students interested, I could go out on a gig and keep people interested with my music playing. So that playing gigs was no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> if you can keep eighth graders interested, yeah, an audience that's there to see you anyway, yeah, no problem. Uh, John, when did you start teaching in the guitar department? How did that happen? Okay, after I graduated in 77 and took a few years to teach on my own at home and do some playing. I had a lot of gigs and uh, did some traveling. In 1980, well, let me lead up to that. Uh, for several years in between there, while I was teaching at home, I had a bunch of students uh, that were teaching, that were from Cambridge area that mm -hmm. were studying with me. One of them happened to be David Gilmore. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so these young guys, very talented guys, were, were studying with me regularly. And I would take them to every one of the 
guitar nights at Berkeley. At that time, there was only one a year, and it was at the Performance Center. So I would take the four or five of them to guitar night and introduce them to Bill and say, hey, Bill, these guys are working on your books and all. They want to say thank you. And, and I wasn't doing that for any other reason than just to say, you know, here, these guys really appreciate your work, and I just wanted to show you. And in 1980, he, September or somewhere thereabouts, he called me on the phone and said, Hey, John, there's an opening. Do you want it? Mm. And on the other end of the phone, I'm going... <laughs> and I said, uh, Yeah, Bill, that sounds fine. <laughs> so that's how that started. And that I, the intention at the time was, let me do three or four years teaching at Berkeley before I go out to L.A. and become a studio musician. Mm-hmm. 41 years later, I'm still saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many questions for you, um, but I'm going to take a break and, and ask Cheryl what's on her mind right now. Well, I was just thinking about in, in all these scenarios, you know, you had an intention that you had set on. And then as you headed in that direction, it bifurcated and you turned out in a different places. And I, I always think that's probably the most common thing in in all of anyone's career is you know you show up and you're heading somewhere and then at some point you have that openness to realize oh wait this is calling me over here um so i think that's i think that's a really i think so many careers are based on that you know you set out to do one thing and you go and you have that you have that ability, you have that musicianship, obviously. I think that's the other side of it, is you work on developing all those skills. You can apply them in many different ways. Yeah. You yeah. know, and then just to have the openness to go, oh, wow, okay, well, you know, I was going to be a music teacher in the schools, but th- then this called me that way or this way. And um, I think that's great. I mean, as Kim is always talking about the, the adaptability, you know, you're developing your skills and, and just life in in being a musician and music could call you in so many ways yeah so you know the more as you do like you're so meticulous in all of your materials um actually you know we have been working on that book the about the proficiency stuff and Mm -hmm. i was looking through your stuff and i I mean i was a student while you were teaching her and and I really regretted that I didn't study with you when I was uh. reading, because your stuff is so precise, the way you express things, and so thorough. And I was looking, I was like, man, I should have hung out with that guy when I was... <laughs> yeah, you could, have taught, you could have taught me a few things, I no, think. No, no, but I can, now I'm hanging out with you now, so that's what counts. <laughs> well, you know, versatility and diversity and flexibility is one of the things I try and teach all my students is that you know, this is the music business, and the music business is fickle, and we have no idea where it's going to and where it's heading. You have to be prepared, and you have to be prepared for anything that might come your way because you don't know what door is going to open. It was like last week we had that, you know, our soiree, and I gave you the quotes, and one of the quotes had to do with doors opening, mm-hmm. where one door closes, another door opens. But you have to be prepared to be able to go through that door. Right. And that's why... We do what we do. We train students to try and be able to do everything. Students need to be able to play chords. Students need to be able to read. Students need to be able to improvise in a number of different styles. Students need to be creative. Students need to be able to function. Students need to be on time. As we talked about, you know, things that, things that a professional has to understand 
and no, because when that door opens and you really don't know which door it's going to be, you have to be ready to go through it. That's right. I was thinking as you were talking about, you know, you've come and you've taught here for four decades in the guitar department. And so you've seen a lot of different groups and cohorts of students come through. And at the same time, your style, I think people would say is really distinctive. You're a versatile guitar player. And yet when we hear you, it's like, oh yeah, that's John Baboyan. Or if someone said to me, could you describe kind of how he plays? I feel like I have a sound of you in my mind that you've developed. So one of the questions that I have when, because that's true is how did teaching at Berkeley in one way sort of help you as you were developing your own distinctive sound? And then how did that work when you're also trying to create materials to help people grow in a changing musical environment? Did you feel yeah. like there are big points of change? Like, Yeah, I, can, I remember vividly when everybody was coming into my lessons and saying, you know, I would always ask students at the beginning of their first lesson, Okay, who are you into? Who do you like? Who do you listen to? And I can remember when students were s starting to say quite distinctly, Pat Metheny. Mm -hmm. And then I remember when students started very distinctly saying, Eddie Van Halen. And I remember distinctly when they started saying Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I remember when it went to John Mayer. And, and so forth and so on. So I can kind of see where there were always a number of guitar players that would come through and they were being influenced by new people. And, and you would hear those names regularly. So you knew there was something influential happening with that player. You know, Matheny, obviously, Eddie Van Halen, obviously, you know, they were influencing them. Um, and maybe I'm kind of like getting off topic a little bit, but I learn as much from my students as I do, I think, teach from them because they all play different styles. Generally, they tend to come to me because they want it, whatever style they're doing, they'd like to expand into some jazz. And my background was as a rock player and blues player first, turned jazzers. So I have that background. That's what I did. And uh, I think they un they appreciate the fact that, yeah, I was at one point a jazz or rocker. I mean, rocker and bluesier, and still am to a certain extent. Uh, I pull out my pedal board every couple of times a year and turn them all on at the same time and have some fun with it, you know. Depends on the gig. If there's a gig that calls for it, it's like scream therapy. I really enjoy turning them all on and, and blasting and having a great sound. Um, but I, it's... Um, Oh, I kind of went off topic again. Uh, I learn as much from them. And um, the, the, the whole jazz thing, that's what I do. That's what I'm known as. But I came from a different background. So there's that variety involved as well. Cool. Hmm. Um, Ian, this sounds like a moment for you to jump in. Yeah, sure. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, you know, you've been in so many different roles at Berkeley, like as a student, as somebody who's a pre sort of student, you were in this extension program. Um, and then as a longtime faculty member, I'm curious, uh, there's a question that I always ask um, our guests, and that is, 
Um, is there something that like you've, you've noticed that a lot of students come in um, that they might be asking a certain set of questions or they might be thinking of something in a certain way and you've, you can sort of notice a blind spot that there's something that they should be aware of that they mm -hmm. should be asking that they don't know to ask. Hmm. I'm not sure that they don't know what to ask, but I know that they, they know what they're deficient at. The, the, the number one thing, and this should be without any hesitation, is reading. They almost all come in and say, yeah, I'm not really a good reader. What can I do to do about that? And what can you do to help me with that? And then second, in my particular case, they, they say, how do I play jazz lines? How do I create jazz lines? Um, and, and it's one of those things that I was hearing many, many, many times. There's a third one as well, but let me finish this first and then remind me I got a third one in my mind. Um, it, it was, they were, you know, particularly blues and rock players who are used to... And they would ask, okay, how do I turn it into a jazz line? And I'm saying, okay, first, you know this major scale. So instead of just playing that major scale, how about if you add one chromatic note in there? And then do a couple. of a sudden you start hearing more beboppy type lines by putting those in there. And so that's something that they're not aware that it's a, that simple to do. And so you show them how they might do that. The third thing that frequently happens is students come in and say, I don't know how to put together a routine, a practice routine. How do I put together my practice schedule? And so that's one of those things that you kind of show them. Here's some ideas. These are topics. There's four big headings that I like, warm-ups, reading, chords, repertoire. That's it. I mean, if you can do those four headings, you got everything covered. There's a whole bunch of subheadings underneath of those, but those are the four things you got to work on. And so if you have one hour to practice on a given day, 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. If you've got four hours to practice on a day, one hour, one hour, one hour, one hour. You don't have to set a stopwatch so that it's, you know, oh, 60 minutes, I better go on to the next thing. No, just, but, you know, balance in your practice routine. Yeah. It sounds like, too, you're, even in your first story, when you first played for Bill and you played the G major scale, and then he asked you to read there, um, it sounds like a common thing that you've seen is the idea of making connections. Like you have the scale pattern. Now you have to understand that when you read, you're going to use that pattern. Yeah, yeah. You have the blues lick, and it's not like you throw that away when you play jazz. It's now we, you just look at the same data in a different way. Um, do you feel like when you're even giving people suggestions for their practice routines, are you encouraging them to do that in a specific way? Yeah, there, there's that disconnect mm -hmm. between, oh, you're practicing this scale in five different positions. Okay, so now let's improvise. Wait, wait, here's, let's see if I can give an obvious example. All right, we're going to practice in G major. Give me f three G major fingerings. Okay, good. Let's improvise in G. 
Okay, so for for the people who are listening on the podcast, what he did was he played three of our scale patterns that we use in the proficiency, starting in the second position, moving up the neck. And then when he went to improvise, he played the pentatonic scale that we all learned first up at the 12th fret, Mm -hmm. like completely disregarding all of the work that he had done on, on the majority of the guitar neck with the new patterns that like a student would be learning at Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. That, that disconnect is very important to try and connect yeah. How do you help them? Well, I'm, well, I was just going to say about that. I think that's always that that fear of the getting out of their comfort zone. You mm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they know that, and that's safe. And I th- always think what you're great at is encouraging students to explore that new area because it, you're not going to sound good at it right away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're probably going to stumble and quote unquote make tons of mistakes so sure. that's scary that's wow that that's like a vulnerable place but you're really great at that of just being encouraging and saying you know what yeah try it down there you know yeah. i think that's yeah. i think that's what you is your strength as a as a teacher is like letting students stumble and not it's okay you're not going to be you know, Joe passed your first time you use that new right, finger. Right, right. You know, you gotta you gotta be able to step into the water before you can start trying to swim. And if you if you do, if you're practicing that G major scale for you're not practicing it just to pass the proficiency. And some people think that's its only purpose. No, it's to to master the neck of the guitar and have that material available to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have, do you help people with strategy often? Do, you, do they need like those steps from mm-hmm. you? And how do you approach that? Like if you have someone who is afraid to, to start to improvise with like the new patterns. That yeah, well, you have to feel out the student, I think, because every student is different. And some, you, you know who you can kind of force to say, no, I, I want you to use that stinking <laughs> pattern, will you? And then there's those you say, you know, it's you have to treat a little bit more gingerly because you don't want them to lose their love of what they're doing. And, and that's what you have to be careful. I mean, why do we all do this? We all do this because we love playing the guitar and making music. Mm-hmm. And if you take that love away from them, that's kind of bad. So right. we have to try and balance that, you know, how to keep them loving their instrument, but saying, you know, this is going to make you even better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that something you've found over the years, like this kind of idea of having the proficiencies and the idea of it, I think always, even when the materials were different, the idea is like, these are the building blocks yeah. for everything that you do, regardless of style, really dependent. It's an application process yeah. into authenticity of style. Um, and what you said, I think we've all heard so many times where people are like, oh yeah, I, I can play those for the test mm-hmm. without that sense that then when you go to ensemble or then when you go to your repertoire, that's what it's made of. And um, I think we're all working on kind of connecting those dots. Right. Um, have you had a few moments that you think you can think of where that really worked in a powerful way or? Yeah, I think um, early on, and in my case, early on could have been anywhere between the, now and the last 40 years. Somewhere along, somewhere along the line, um, I started teaching the modes, particularly the major scale modes in first semester, and, and saying, you know, if you're going to work on the Dorian mode, 
based on this fingering and and here's where it comes from and how this pattern is here's a song that utilizes the dorian mode very big time obvious answer to that is so what by miles davis Mm -hmm. a more in more useful i don't want to say useful more different because you don't always do so what is little sunflower by freddie hubbard which is also very dorian oriented or um herbie hancock cantaloupe island which apparently they're all doing now as part of that M class, whatever it is they do in first semester. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and I didn't know that until I started pulling that out for a student. Say, oh, yeah, I did this in M class. And I said, oh, good, okay. So you know the song a little bit. Have you played it on the guitar? No. Well, good, let's play it. And so what you do is find a song that represents what they're studying as a theoretical concept. And now you're saying, here's how this works and why it why you learned it you didn't learn it just to pass the proficiency it you know it happens in songs Mm. yeah it's funny i I think the guitar is like that you can go a long time playing different things and not realize that they're the same you know i feel like even now i have moments like that Yeah. yeah that really come up you know um Hey, I got to tell you one more. I was going to tell Go you a story about uh, the the versatility, the variety thing. Mm. This is one that I, I, it's kind of a fact and fiction at the same time. Um, this actually happened to me to a certain point. I usually tell students that you want to be prepared for any eventuality because you never know when you're going to get a call like this. I got a call about 25 years ago from somebody who is saying, I've got a gig for you at a Swiss ski chalet for three weeks and 1500 bucks a week, all expenses, hotel, the works. And it was, it was a great gig. And I couldn't do it because it was at the start of Berkeley teaching. And, and so I couldn't take the gig. So that's, that's part of the story. That's the facts part of the story. The fiction part of the story, I go on and I say, hey, yeah, you got this great three weeks. You got to play at a Swiss ski chalet, uh, 1500 bucks a week, all expenses, and, and it's a great gig, but you got to play the banjo. <laughs> and the point of that being that if you want that gig, you better know how to play the banjo or at least have one in your corner so that you can grab it and really quickly. Oh, yeah. OK, I can do this. Yes. And I have three of them, by the way. Don't tell John Wheatley or Dave Hollander. But, yeah, I've got three of them. Two of them are five string banjos. One was my grandfather's banjo from about 100 years ago. Uh, the other one was a gift from a family who had no need for it. So they said, yes, you take it. And then the other one is a six-string Dean banjo that I realized that I'm never going to play the five-string banjo. So I found this six-string banjo online that tunes like a guitar. So, yeah, I can play a six-string banjo. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I could have taken the gig. <laughs> I could have taken the gig. That is so true because I think a lot of times, especially if something's hard or challenging or unfamiliar students will tell themselves well it doesn't matter because I don't need to know how to do that I do this and Mm -hmm. then in reality you're right you may be called on to do many things that you're not expecting and absolutely and it's um it's interesting to me because I think one of the cool things about Berkeley is that you can make a lot of choices as a student but that also means that you have to choose to go where 
it's hard to go sometimes. You yeah. don't have like a set grid that says, sorry, you have to take an improvisation class with John Boboyan, or you have to take a sight reading class with Mark White. So you have to put yourself by choice in a position to learn something that's hard or unfamiliar to, to yeah. you. Yeah. Um, have you seen students like either run at a problem like that in a way that impressed you, or have you seen people sort of avoid it and then maybe finally come around to it? Yeah, both, you know, both sides, because it depends on the student, you mm -hmm. know, that clearly you would, you would want to try and get as much down as you possibly can while you're at school. Because right. when you get out in the real world, you won't, oddly enough, you won't have as much time as you think to practice and put it all to you to try to put it to use then so this is your time to try and work it out and figure out what i need to know or at least get the basics and understanding of what you are at some point going to need to do so that when the opportunity arises you might be able to do it mm -hmm. too many windows out there it, it's it's interesting this is um i was thinking about this the other day as boy, I don't want to get political here, and and I won't. I'm, but I just have to hint at it a little bit. Uh, late recently, Joe Biden stopped the gas, the pipeline, um, and there's about a thousand people going to be losing their job as a result. And I understand that that's not a good thing, but they have to be prepared to change jobs when things change, as we have to do that as the music changes. Mm -hmm. And I remember vividly about 25 years ago playing a gig with a bunch of good, very good older musicians. It was a big band gig. It was a society gig. It was probably for some kid, rich kid's birthday party. I don't know what it was. I don't remember. But it was like we had a 20-piece orchestra. And um, I do recall during one of the breaks, the trumpet players were all standing in a circle, kind of looking at each other and saying, where did all the gigs go? Hmm. And I thought about this for a second, and I said, man, I'm working like 12, 15 gigs a month. What do you mean, where did the gigs go? And it occurred to me that what happened was the music had changed, and they didn't. Hmm. And as a result... They were left behind. As a guitar player, we have to be prepared to be able to play anything from 1920s music to 2021 music. And the music is not going to go backwards. Yeah, at times it will. But for the most part, music is moving forward. Technology is moving forward. And you can either be prepared to be able to move forward with it or you can prepare yourself to be left behind as the music moves and you don't. And for these trumpet players at that time, who were very good musicians, they, not through their own choice, were left behind. Now, if you choose, like at this point in my career, I choose not to play certain kinds of music. Because I've been doing what I do for a long time now, and I can stay where I am, and I'm kind of happy accompanying singers and playing standards and, and enjoying playing solo guitar music at restaurants and, and when really occasionally nice, really gig comes, comes up, beautiful, wonderful. But if it goes no further than that for me right now, I'm satisfied. 
But if I'm younger, I would have to think to myself, I've got to look ahead and say, okay, where is this music going to be heading? And how am I going to stay up with it as that changes? Mm. The Dorian mode is not going to change. Right. But how it's applied probably will. So that was my question. Like, if you could make, you know, say recommendations for choice for students, like what are things that are constants that you feel like you have to study this, you have to make this choice, in my opinion? And then what are the things that the types of skills they develop to allow them to adapt maybe to something that they can't even see is going to be? What are your recommendations? Well, the basic elements of the instrument and the music are, are going to be constant. The Dorian mode is going to be the Dorian mode. Right. Scales, modes, arpeggios, the function of the instrument, how it, how it works, the mechanics of the instrument. I like to talk about this machine. Oh, we have, co- we have coffee talk. Wait, I got an analogy here with the coffee talk. This is good. Um, this is a machine. Mm-hmm. We have to learn how to make the machine work. If you go to Starbucks and you ask them for a cappuccino and the person behind the counter doesn't know how to work the cappuccino machine, you're not going to get a good cup of cappuccino. (laughs) If you don't know how to make this machine work, you're not going to get good music out of it. So one of the constants is you have to learn how to work the machine. That means learning fingerings, learning scales, learning arpeggios, learning chord forms, and how they function harmonically. The things that will change, and you have to be prepared for, is that, and it depends on how you perceive where you see your career going, of course. If the music changes, I've got to be ready to adjust to that as well. Mm-hmm. The technology involved with all of this is not going to go backwards. We're not going to go back to cassette players anytime soon. It's only going to move forward, and you have to be prepared to move forward with that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Cheryl, what are you thinking about as we're talking? I, I think everything that you're saying, John, is, is really wise. This is wisdom that you're laying out here, and, mm. and, and factual stuff, like really what you're saying there, and really even from the beginning when we were talking about that adaptability, it's based on those skills. Yeah, you're right. The major scale is the foundation of Western music, mm-hmm. and it has been and it will continue to be, but you might be playing it through whatever. And you know, now all the stuff with doing home concerts, remote concerts, people were doing that for a while, but now it's just front and center. But still, you're gonna have to prepare some repertoire, you're gonna have to, you know. Mm-hmm be able to play at this level whatever you want people to tune into the next time yeah. <laughs> here's my real you know so i i think this is really important for uh, for everything that we do you know here in a college environment in terms of about music it's about the music and the skills and developing that because that is going to be your calling card to success in whatever form that takes so I really, it's great to hear it from you, and you've put it so succinctly and straight ahead. It's really, it's really great to hear that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this all the time, you know, when we're talking about curriculum, and I always feel as though if people can focus on playing their instrument and understanding how the 
guitar works and then understanding how your hands work to make your sound. Yeah. You can't go wrong with depth. I feel like sometimes people are, are wanting to say, oh, look, you know, pop music, it's a lot simpler than some of these other styles of music. So you don't really need to know a whole lot about your instrument. And, you know, as long as it sounds pretty good, you can tweak your tone later with the electronics. You can throw it into Logic or Pro Tools. And, and that has never sounded right to me. I cannot imagine that you can't go further if you don't know your instrument better you know i if you're going to be a poet no one would say you don't have to learn a lot of words yeah you know and um you don't need to know how to write words if you just want to say them and uh, yeah i had a little stint of my life as a producer and it never sounded good when you spliced up the records <laughs> you know it only sounded great there are a lot of times like we we were a coveted studio where i was at fred plout studios at yale um, Fred had founded the studio and my, my boss was his first assistant and who was still there after 45 years. And he would just turn people away. We would stop sessions often and say, why don't you come back when you can really play this like a concert? Oh, yes. You know, we wouldn't keep going. If it looked like, you know, I'd be mapping the score to see where we would splice. And if, and he would look at my first two maps and say, okay, we're cutting it off. We're cutting yeah, it off. Yeah. And it was always better when it was a performance, when it was really deep and beautiful. And, you know, we could just get the sound of the room and do a few things to it, you right. know? So I, I think it's important what you're saying. And I just wanted to underscore that, that even if technology moves forward, even if music goes through these ebbs and flows of complexity and simplicity, the depth that you have to have as an instrumental musician as a guitar player, never changes. You always have to go as deep as you can go. Right, right. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. That's, but thinking about from the studio perspective, you also have to be aware of the financial perspective of this. Mm -hmm. And the more cut and paste that you have to do of stuff, the longer you're going to be in the studio, the more costly it is for you and for the producer if you're working for a producer and producers who are putting up the money for something they're not happy when it starts costing more money mm. the quicker you're able to do something the first or second time the less money you are costing them and they like you more yeah and that goes back to what you're saying about reading mm -hmm. if you can read down that part and it doesn't sound like you're reading notes for the first time in your life you know you're reading it's a performance right yeah be one of the, one of the things that i do quite a bit of not as much anymore but did quite a bit of was work a lot with let's call them vegas headliners mm -hmm. that travel around and so if you're part of the local musicians union and you're kind of have a reasonable reputation uh you get called to play gigs like that where somebody's coming to town for an evening and you're hired to do the gig and what you do is the rehearsal in the afternoon for two or three hours and then the concert at night for two hours whatever it is um you know one example that can come to mind for me was uh okay well let me backtrack a little bit i, I for two years i worked with ben vereen traveling mm -hmm. uh great singer actor uh dancer and a lot of times it would be a case of uh, they'd call, the office would call and say, hey, March 15th, can you be in Chicago? 
great, good, I'll be there. Um, May 25th, we're going to be in Naples, Florida. Can you be there? Yeah. And so for two years, I was doing that with him. But in that type of situation, I had worked a little bit with them regularly, so I knew their stuff. But a person like that coming to town, hiring the local musicians, let's say it's Tom Jones. I had to do one with Tom Jones once. You get an afternoon rehearsal, oftentimes with just the music director, not even necessarily with the star. And they don't do all the charts. They'll run the beginnings and the middles. And if the band is good enough, they say, good, these are good musicians. We don't have to do the rest of the chart which means you don't even get to practice the whole chart. <laughs> and then you get a break, and the gig starts at 7 o'clock. You go put your tuxedo on, you go out, and you play behind Tom Jones for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can't read that chart the first time, you're not going to get called back to do that gig. That's right. Because you're going to cost them time, money, and they're not going to be very happy. Right. Now, that's not a gig everybody can do, and there's a certain amount of knowing the right people and somebody giving you a chance on all to get that to happen. You know, in the music business, sometimes being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people, and getting lucky, those are those things you've heard for generations still hold true. Uh, and, and that's how that happened for me, too. But it was, you know, if, if I had not been able to read the parts right away... There's no way they would have kept me on that gig. Mm. Right. And I want to make one note to refer to Joe Stump's interview. The fact that you played with Tom Jones would have... If, as a teenager, Joe Stump revealed that his big influence for his accessorizing of silver was due to Tom Jones. So Really? I'm sure you've just gone up that much further in Joe Stump's... <laughs> That's so true. Wait till we're back on campus. He's going to be so excited. Oh, that's funny. With the scarves, too. It was the rings and the scarves, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, That's funny. Joe and I have another connection, too. Joe Joe and I, Joe's a big Yankees fan, and I'm a big Red Sox fan. mm -hmm. And so we're always at it about the Yankees and the Red Sox. Have been for like 10, 20, yeah, probably 10, 20 years and uh, outside of my office is the water cooler on the fifth floor. So everybody always comes over to visit with me because the water cooler is there. And Joe comes over every once in a while. So we're always talking Red Sox, Yankees. Yeah. That's great. Um, Ian, how, how does what John has been talking about um, strike you as a person who's, you know, newer out of school and, and playing now, working on things? Yeah, I'm... I, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, generally like, you know, people come to Berkeley and they tend to think of it like, you know, a lot of folks anyway, um, sort of conceive of it like a jazz school or think of it as like, you know, in, uh, in an audition, I have to play jazz or something. And the truth is, is that we actually are are one of the only schools where you can play any kind of music. Right. Um, and it's really interesting to hear you say that you started out, you know, wanting to be Jimi Hendrix, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to hear about like you dealing with students of all these different um, styles of music. And I'm just curious about how these things have changed or evolved throughout the guitar department um, with you, you know, both as a student and then as a teacher for so long. Like, how is how have you sort of seen that progression? And 
How early on was it where it was really such a diverse school? Like, has it always been this way or That's has a it good grown? Um, no, it's grown. Yeah, it's, it's expanded its horizons over the generations. Um, early on, it was a jazz school because that's what the popular music was at one point. Mm-hmm. If you go look at movies and television shows from the 1950s, popular music that you'd hear on the radio was going on was jazz-oriented music. And so that's what they were teaching. Um, When I was a student in the 70s, I think it started expanding a little bit because I know that uh, I was a jazzer or a rocker wanting to be a jazzer. But there were a lot of other musicians around that were rockers that still wanted to be rockers. And so they recognized that Berkeley was that type of place where you could expand that. And in the guitar department, we were still a little bit tight. Um, Bill's influence, you know, Bill was a wonderful educator, exceptional educator and, and great guitar player and was so organized that turned the guitar department into the great department it has become. He was really responsible for all of this. But there was also times when, you know, Bill would say, well, you're going to use that finger? I think you should use the other fingering. And, and, and he was kind of a stickler about that. And that was great. And I was following that. And then, you know, at some point you'd see students playing a different fingering. And you say, well, you know, that's not the fingering Bill would. Yeah, it actually works. I, yeah, okay, I'll go with that. Sure, why not? <laughs> and you start expanding your own horizons as you realize that you don't have to be quite so narrow. And so I'd say it's in the past 30 years or so that it's expanded the horizons a little bit. Mm-hmm. Definitely by the fact that we have so many versatile teachers in, in the department, that helps. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, clearly somebody who's studying with me and somebody who's studying with Joe Stump are not looking for the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Right. Yeah. Right. John, when you were talking about um, your gig experience, you made a mention of the union, I think. Mm-hmm. And over time, I mean, could you talk a little bit about like what role being in the musicians union plays in, in pr- your professional life and, and kind of how you see that working um, or, or not working for students yeah. coming out of school now? That's, that's an interesting question because the union's role has kind of changed uh, over the generations. There was a time when you just were a, ju- a union musician. If you were going to work as a musician, you had to join the union. Otherwise, you weren't going to get gigs. That has changed over time. Um, it depends on the kind of gigs you're looking for. If you want to be an orchestral musician, if you want to be a Broadway show pit orchestra musician, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to play a lot of these society gigs that pay really good money, you kind of have to be in the union. Um, okay. You know, in, for example, a couple of years ago, I got a call to cover uh, with the Boston Pops for West Side Story. They were going to do West Side Story in concert. Okay. And uh, John Finn wasn't available. He was doing a show, and Scotty was, was doing a show. <laughs> so Scotty recommended me, and they called me. I said, yeah, I'm available, and, and it's my favorite show, too. So, and so we did, like, uh, two rehearsals, three performances at Symphony Hall. And uh, without the union, that's, none of those musicians on the stage would be working without the union. That's right. part of what happens with that. 
if you're going to do any Broadway pit orchestras. Uh, and, and when I say Broadway pit orchestras, that's not limited to just Broadway. There's those shows in every major city in the world. Uh, that's union work. Okay. Where union is not involved now that it used to be is now like the club dates, as they call it in New York, or GB gigs, uh, so much where you're playing functions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of a touchy subject because I've been a union member for a long time and I, I believe in, in the musicians' union. Mm-hmm. They've had a hard time adjusting to the music changing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a lot of the changes that affect us all professionally are, have been pretty rapid. Is that yeah. accurate or is that just how I feel about it? I guess it depends on your time period, you know, where... <laughs> The older you get, the older you get, your years become a smaller percentage of your life Mm -hmm. and things start moving quicker and and they feel like they're moving quicker. (laughs) Oh, no, I I know. I think I know what that means then. No, it's like when somebody explained it to me once a long time ago and it made sense. I said, you know, when you're four years old, one year is 25 percent of your life. That's true. But when you're 100 years old, one year is 1% of your life. And, and so, oh boy, forget it. I'm getting, get, now we're getting dire. I don't know. I'm getting old. I just had the oh, realization man. that I'm getting old. Um, no, that's good. I mean, do you feel um, all of these changes, though, you still see opportunities for students? To work oh, yeah. professionally. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, music, the entertainment industry isn't going anyplace. People right. like to be entertained. And with the internet now, there's even more opportunities. You just have to know how to find them and, and, and experience them. Mm-hmm. Monetization of it has changed dramatically. Right. We've, we understand that. I think everybody's aware of that. The younger students probably don't understand the way we used to get paid. And now how they understand how the new system is, but that has changed dramatically. And for those of us that were used to like, okay, we're going to make a bunch of CDs and sell them at gigs. And when when we run out of the first thousand, we'll print another thousand and sell those. I've got a bunch of boxes up in my attic here. (laughs) Got some boxes as well. (laughs) So the monetization of the music has changed. That's up for them to have to figure out. I'm not going to be able to help them with that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're going to have to figure that out. But the music isn't going anywhere. It's going to be there. It's going to be in movies. It's going to be on radio. It's going to be on television. It's going to be in commercials. They just have to figure out how to get involved with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, like Cheryl had brought up the word adaptation before, and we're seeing that obviously right now, because for a lot of the young students who are making decisions about, do I take a semester off in the pandemic? Do I come back? Do I come back remotely? Do I come back in person? Um, It might be the first major time in in their music life where they've had to make a huge change. You know, instead of thinking like, yeah, it's a big change to come to Berkeley, but then like you feel like, okay, once I'm in, I kind of on this track. But now they've had to make these big changes and um, and maybe find some opportunities in there. And um, I think one of the nice things for us has been to see people try it, like come remotely 
and then be so happily surprised that they found something they didn't expect to find as you know, they think this is going to be a setback, but actually it's an opportunity. Yeah. And um, it sounds like what you're saying is like, you're going to have to do that anyway in your life. So you might as well start now. Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, the big thing that happened for me with this pandemic was learning how to use recording software and a microphone that, that I had started about 15 years ago. I was going to try and do it with Pro Tools and then realized that, eh, you know, it's probably better if I just let the engineer take care of business and I'll just go play in their studio. And then this pandemic happened and, and this is my studio now. And I, I have this nice mic that was in my basement that I grabbed, an Audio-Technica mic that I, I, from 15 years ago. And the software, GarageBand and Logic, and all of a sudden I started recording myself for tracks for my students and for my classes. And I started learning how to do what I never would have done had it not been for this circumstance. Mm-hmm. So adaptability, mm-hmm. flexibility, mm-hmm. being able to, you know, say, okay, this has to, we've got to figure out how we're going to do this. What am I going to do? Well, I could sit, sit down and watch TV and say, nah, not going to be able to do it. Or you can dig in and try it. Right. Right. Um, Again, the swimming analogy. You know, if you don't jump into the water, you're not going to learn how to swim. Right. What are you working on now musically? Have you been inspired to practice some different things, or what well, are you, what are you mostly mostly it's been recording a lot of the bebop guitars arrangements that I've done over the years mm-hmm. into recording software now. Um, I, I have the music that we recorded way back when by all of the guys that were in the band, um, but those are on stereo stereo tracks. I don't have the separate tracks for those because oh, yeah. those were a long time ago. So what I'm doing now is recording each of the individual parts on into GarageBand in my case and using those with the bebop guitars ensemble that I've got and also using it with my vocal accompaniment lab and the jazz styles lab because I'm having students now take my tracks and replacing their tracks on in place of mine so they have to play so they're not playing live but they're playing to me anyway that's what that's what I'm doing mostly now can you talk a little bit about the bebop guitars the ensemble the group because um I don't know if people listening know what the group is, but um, it's a bunch of um, really longtime Berkeley faculty were in this group with you. And so um, I've always thought that was must be really interesting to be the band leader of a group of friends and colleagues and sort of herd all those cats. Because when I'm thinking of them, I'm literally thinking of all these really strong amazing personalities yeah and i have this image of you with your glasses on down at the edge of your nose like okay cats let's get it together like i watched you lead one rehearsal with them and i just thought that's incredible that and everybody stopped everybody's like oh he's got his glasses down you know you can't um mess with him but how do you um how did you do that like you put together a group of your friends and colleagues who were so different to play this music that you all are experts in, and then you have to direct them. 
Yeah, isn't that fun, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and you've done it for decades. I just want to point out, right? That this group started in the '80s, right? Um, yes. Maybe. Yeah, I think 1990 was when okay. I started, or some. Yeah, might have been late '80s at that point. But yeah, you know, person. It's interesting. Personalities. Everybody has a different personality, and and anytime anyone has worked with any group of musicians, you know, this is. But this is what you have to deal with. There's no no way that seven people are all going to have the same personality. So you have to react and deal with it. I mean, you have to do this on a daily basis with the 60 faculty that we have. We're all different. Mm-hmm. It, and it's the same thing. The band started... Um, I had the idea after... I, I enjoyed Super Sax, the band that was made up of five L.A. saxophone people, piano, bass, drums. And they took... Charlie Parker transcriptions and harmonized. This is insane. The Charlie Parker transcriptions for five saxophone parts, and they would play harmonized Charlie Parker transcriptions at the real tempo, which is insanity. But they did it. Go listen to Super Sax. They're they're really amazing. And one of the the leader of Super Sax, Med Flory, was actually an actor. He's in movies that from the 1960s. If you go and look up his name, you'll find out he was in some Jerry Lewis movies, and and you'll see his face. And that's Med Flory. He's, he's the head of Super Sax. Okay, so um, I decided I'd like to grab some Super Sax charts and turn them into guitar charts. So I went to see Joe Viola, who was the head of the sax, the the woodwind department. Wonderful guy. He was very. He was Bill Levitt of the woodwind department. Joe Viola. And I told him what I was looking for, and he went into his file cabinet and pulled out about 10 charts from Super Sax and gave them to me. And I said, wow, this is wonderful. Did you, I'll make copies and bring them back. He said, no, those are copies. You can have them. Wow. <laughs> so I took those, and they were written for saxophone, of course, alto, alto, tenor, tenor, baritone. I took them and had to transpose them out so that they would fit the guitar. So we started, and oh, and and when I brought this, what brought that back to my office, John Marasco's office was right around the corner from me. So during our mutual break, I said, John, come here, we got to try this. And so I took the alto sax one part, and he took the alto sax two part, and we started trying him, and said, yeah, this can work. And that's how it started. And so I started transposing the parts and said, who should, who would I like to get to do this? And Larry was in my mind, and Garrison, um, Aldemio, Al, Aldemio, Aldefino, I've done that before too. <laughs> Aldefino, Al who just recently passed away, and of mm-hmm. course John and Garrison, John Marasco and Garrison are both gone. Mm-hmm. Um, one, me, Garrison, John Marasco, Larry, Al. Uh oh. Oh, I'm screwed now. <laughs> Because there were six. Al was six. Um, there's a six that I can't remember. Oh, no. It'll come to me. It'll come to you. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, we did. We started by doing the super sax charts and trying to play some of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, oh, John Wilkins. That's John what I was going to guess John Wilkins or John Davis. <sighs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, and then I started writing my own arrangements, 
so that we wouldn't just be the super sax band playing on guitars. And so now I've got about 50 arrangements that I've put together, some of them original compositions, some of them are arrangements of standard tunes. And uh, about 20 years ago or so, Larry and Rick asked if I would start the student group of the bebop guitars, and mm -hmm. so I did that, and so it continues. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, Cheryl, what's on your mind as we kind of wind down our coffee. I don't know. This was a really great conversation, I have to say. I, I am really inspired by it. Um, mm -hmm. Just you talking about your, you know, your foundations of your teaching philosophy and, um, and, you know, again, back to this thing about developing that core of musicianship and really that's what it's about and, and it can move in any direction and probably will <laughs> in your career. Um, so yeah, thank you. I, I really, I really enjoyed um, having time to share some of these thoughts and, and really listen to, to where you're coming from. Yeah, cool. I got two two more stories to tell. You know, like mm. I like I got nothing else to say. No, it's great. <laughs> Keep going. Um, we 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 talked early on when I was a Berkeley. Uh, extension student and uh, one of the students that I was studying with was Tom Rotella mm -hmm. who went on to become a great LA studio musician so this is going to come around I'm going to go around the sides but it'll come to the center again uh, about 10 years ago I got a call from the musicians union that there was a need for a guitar player for a movie that was going to be filmed in Boston great I'll do it I actually had a gig that was in Washington that was going to overlap with this. It was a wedding in Washington, D.C. that I was supposed to be at. And I, I'm looking at this. And I said, wow, I got a chance to make a movie. But the gig's in what? How am I going to do that? So I was able to arrange a flight. So the band all drove down in vans and I was able to arrange a flight. And because the filming of the movie kept moving back, I had to keep calling JetBlue and move my flight back. So it cost me some money to do this, but it was worth it because the movie was Ted with Seth MacFarlane and Ted one, the good one. And so in Ted one, about halfway through the film, there's a scene where they're at a house party and this, the camera comes right to the band and starts with the band and it comes right to me and stays with me for a while as it moves forward. It's not very long, but it's very obvious. And this was around 2011, 2012. And when the movie came out, students were stopping me on the street. I had no idea who they were, but they saw me and they said, we just saw you and we just saw you. And I became a, a momentary star, my 15 minutes of fame from that. Now, the way that the movie was made, the, the music had already been pre-recorded, and we were essentially lip-syncing in the movie as the scene was going on. So it, occur, uh, it occurred to me that somebody is playing the music behind this that I am mimicking. And I did some research, and it turns out that the guitar player on the original tracks that I was mimicking was my old teacher, Tom Rotella. <laughs> now, how is that for coming full circle, right? I was a 15-year-old student studying with him at Berkeley. Here I am in the movie mimicking him playing the guitar part in an L.A. studio. That's awesome. Weird. 
I bet he loved that too. It was it was a great story. We enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that one and one more. And this one's very important for students. You never know where your next break is going to come from, and it's best to be prepared. And I like to say, don't turn down a gig. You don't know what's going to happen. Let me pull this up. And I know part of this is video and part of it is oral, but I want to bring this up. Yeah, we can describe it. We'll just describe what you're showing. This is my Martin Archtop guitar. Oh, beautiful. It's, it, they made a, a small amount of these as a two-inch model and as a three-inch model mm -hmm. in like 2005 to 2010. And around 2005, I got a call to play a gig out in the central part of Massachusetts. It was about an hour's drive away. And it was with a bunch of older music education, music education people, let's say. So they were good musicians, not great musicians. Uh, nice people, so I didn't mind. But I'm thinking to myself, let's see, it's a Wednesday night in the summer. The gig paid like 50 bucks, I think. I said, do I really want to drive out an hour on a Wednesday night and I'm going to have to wear tuxedo pants and a white shirt for an outdoor concert um, and the music's going to be... Eh, okay. Well, my family was away, and, and I was just going to sit home and watch TV. I said, yeah, what the heck, I'll take the gig, I go there. I go there, and the New England rep for Martin Guitars is there. And he looks at me and says, oh, yeah, I know, yeah, Berkeley faculty, I know you, sure. Hey, we're making these new jazz guitars, and we're looking for somebody to be the clinician demonstrator for us. Are you interested? Sure. <laughs> so long story short, I ended up doing a lot of traveling for Martin. I was doing clinics for them, getting paid for doing them. And I ended up with this guitar. They stopped making them around 2010. And at the time it was, you know, keep it. What are you going to, you know, we don't need them anymore. So this ended up, this is my primary jazz guitar now. And, and it came from Martin. The moral of the story don't turn down a stinky gig. You don't know who's going to be there and what it might turn into. That's right. I mean, I think... I mean, if I had stayed home that night, wouldn't have happened. There's so many themes. Um, thinking about what you were talking about, what Cheryl was talking about. When, if, if there are people who are practicers or students of any age listening to this, I think hearing you say to have a comprehensive knowledge of your instrument and to work on things and to go as deep as you can, to be adaptable, to take some chances, but be prepared mm -hmm. when you do that. Yeah. And that all comes to fruition in so many parts of your career and your teaching career and your playing career, whether it's gigging or playing concerts or getting stuff together for your classes you can see it all in there. Um, I almost feel like I would be remiss if I didn't also say for the record on this podcast that you do this amazing thing that people talk about all the time where you can sing and play. Mm. And I think so many people think like, oh, well, maybe I'll sing just to get my ear together, which is maybe why you started singing everything that you play. But now that's a vocal part of your performance that you can do. Yeah, that's it's interesting. That's that. Um, the I don't remember how I developed that. Obviously, I heard George Benson do it to a certain extent. 
I remember going back and after the fact, realizing that I remember Jimi Hendrix on the Band of Gypsies album actually doing it, not in the same way, but he was singing and playing his melodies simultaneously. I said, wow, I didn't realize that. And I think it just kind of like, autom- it was an automatic thing. I, I sing to a certain extent. Um, some people would say, no, he doesn't, but that's, that's another story. But, um, but I do, I, I can do that and I do it kind of naturally. I don't think about it too much. I think that's because the music comes from up in your head mm-hmm. and the guitar is a vehicle to get the music out of, and your voice is a vehicle to get the music out of. And if you can do it simultaneously, um, it's the music coming from your mind and the vehicle itself is not necessarily the, the, the issue. I like all of this because it also, the one thing I didn't say that I think is the key as well is you have an ability to be creative and go where the creativity in the moment needs you to go, but you're also very organized and very detailed. Cheryl's talking about your materials that you make for the students. And it seems that way when you're practicing too, like things seem natural or things throw you for a curve and then you find a way to work on them. That's, that's targeted yeah. so that you can keep getting better. And, and I think that those are the kinds of like dichotomies that are hard for people. I want to be creative and I want to go with the flow, but that also means I have to be organized and disciplined mm. and intentional. Yeah. I think that's because I'm lazy. I'm inherently lazy. I don't think that's true. Well, I think it is, yeah. (laughs) And and the organization helps me not to be lazy. (laughs) I I can identify with that exactly. Mm. I feel the same way. I totally Mm -hmm. get that. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. It yeah. sounds like they're opposites, but it's totally true. Yeah, I think I think they're connected. Yeah, if you're yeah, if you're aware if you're aware of it, that's right. The organization helps you to kind of fight it. Yeah. Mm, see, there's hope. That's good. That's a hopeful <laughs> statement then for all of us. Mm. Um, Ian, what's on your mind here? Not a whole lot. I mean, this is just, uh, you know, it's fascinating. This has gone a lot of places. And I think it's a lot of stuff that the students can take with them, you know, Mm -hmm. both about like the opportunities that they can take, but also like the, you know, the nuts and bolts and practicing, you know, and being more organized. Hmm. John, do you have any um, advice for us, for the three of us, as we're kind of looking at the guitar department moving forward? Wow, keep the versatility happening. I mean, really, that's, you know, if I were a guitar student wanting to come someplace now, this was definitely the place I would want to be because of all the things I can, you know, I can study with Joe Stump to do some metal stuff. I could study with Dave Tronzo to do some of that interesting slide stuff. I can study with David Gilmore, who was one of my students as as a student, and he could teach me all that odd meter stuff that he's doing he can you know it's uh yeah that that variety and versatility is is really great mm, cool mm. well thank you so much for anyway i got one more last being there oh I good promise, promise, i was hoping week, i was hoping good 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 because i still have a little coffee left so i'm glad good good, good 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 <laughs> so uh going back to ben vereen again so the traveling with ben vereen for two years the first gig that i did with him uh, it was a case where uh, his music director pianist knew me and they needed somebody to start playing that gig. 
And so he called me and says, you know, this is this is a good gig I think you would be really good for. Can you do this gig in New Jersey in July, whatever it was? And I said, yeah, sure, great. This would be great to play with Ben Vereen. I love his music and all. And uh, so we get to the place, and it's in central New Jersey. It's a performing arts center. It's an amphitheater that holds about 10,000 people. I don't know the exact name of the place. Students from New Jersey probably know what it is. And uh, we have a morning rehearsal for an afternoon show. It's a Saturday afternoon show. And I get there and set up and meet Ben and and we talk about... It, it's a quartet. His band is not a, like a large ensemble. It's a quartet. Piano, guitar, bass, and drums. All good musicians. And he says to me, uh, in the middle of the show, I want to do a song just with you and me. Uh, because I do that with each of the musicians. It turns out that in the middle of the show, he, he goes to each of the musicians and does a duo with each of them. The drummer, yeah, uh, the bass player, and the, the piano player, and the guitar player. And so we go over a couple of tunes and decide, you know, what's what's it going to be? We're sitting in the back in the green room, and we decide to go with uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. And so now we have to figure out a key. And... We're trying a couple of different keys, and ultimately we decide to go with, uh, I think it was either B-flat or C. And he was sitting down as he was singing this, and, and you, what you realize about singers is if you're singing, sitting down versus standing up, it's different. And you come up with different keys. I know I've done this for myself as I'm, as I'm practicing for a gig, and i got to play, okay, uh, uh, Van Morrison, uh, Brown-Eyed Girl. And I say, oh, yeah, good, that'll work in the key of E. And then I get on the gig and it's too low. No, it's because I was sitting down. I should have done it in the key of G instead. So that's what happened with Ben. And the piano player knew his key. And so we get out on the stage and he comes over to me. And I've worked this whole thing out in the key of C that I'm going to do to to work with Ben Vereen in front of 7,000 people. And the piano player goes to me like this, which for musicians' parlance, I'm holding up three fingers for if you're not if you're only listening right now, which means E flat. <sighs> and so here I've worked this whole thing out in the key of C. I'm ready to do this in front of seven thousand people on my very first gig with Ben Vereen, and all of a sudden I'm think, wait, he's telling me I got to do this in E flat. So. Immediately in my mind, I'm saying, this is what, this moment is what the whole past 40 years has been leading you to. This is why you've practiced all this time. This is why you've been preparing yourself for this very moment. I nailed it. <laughs> and, and I ended up playing two years with them so that, you know... Um, it was a little bit daunting. You got, I mean, here you got thousands of people and you're playing solo guitar with Ben Vereen and you're in the wrong key and you have to adjust immediately. So anyway, that was an interesting part. I just thought that would be something. That's amazing. I mean, luck favors the prepared. That's what my yeah. teacher used to say. Yeah. 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 Preparation. Right. Right. I love that. That's great. That's such a great thing, I think, for people to hear also in the beginning of the semester when you're about to start hitting the fourth week of the semester where everybody starts to get overwhelmed and literally in your mind, you say, why am I doing this? And then you can remember that story. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being here, John. Great. Thanks Thanks for having me. 
And coffee cheers, everybody listening. Um, thank you, Ian. And thank you, Cheryl. And uh, we'll see you on the next Coffee Talk next week. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>